0: to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, issue 23, July 3305. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed. Out in the black.
1: Editorial. Several news articles have passed across our desks over the last week at the time of writing concerning Nova Imperium, The misnomer for the collection of revanchists and traditionalists purged by Emperor Lavigny Duval at the start of 3305. Rather than fade away following their leader's execution and their subsequent rout, they are thriving. As our excellent guest contribution on the topic this month explains, Hadrian Duval has proven a skilful operator, he has filled the gap left by Queso Mordanticus, adopted his invented title, established wily alliances and is steadily building his power base from the Parisa system. Nova Imperium's message is a beguiling one. According to Mordanticus and his heirs, the thawing of relations between the Empire and the Federation is not strength through unity in the face of a common threat, but inexcusable weakness. Alliances do not strengthen the participants equally. They are a zero-sum game in which one party must take advantage of the other and in this, Arissa is leading the empire into vassalage to powerful foreign interests. Strength can only come by barring the doors and raising the drawbridge. The empire has been weakened by collaborating with its enemies, declared Mordanticus in late 3304. Arissa Lavigny Duval is a weak Emperor who must be removed. The citizenry is afraid of being weakened by collaboration with foreign systems. They look to the Emperor for salvation and she offers them none." Echoed Senator Paul Vespasian shortly afterwards. The boyish Hadrian Duval chimed in later with I've seen how diminished the Empire has become and I know that new leadership is sorely needed." The unspoken whinge that the Emperor should be male permeates this chorus. On January 25th, this writer's birthday, the openly treasonous Mordanticus was executed in the Imperial Senate chamber itself. Arissa Lavigny-Duval has revealed the true face of her regime, one based on brutality and terror, whined young Hadrian. The Emperor was now not only too weak but apparently too strong as well. This is not the first time in history that populists have massaged the facts in favour of a preferred narrative but it is worth addressing. Not only are Nova Imperium's accusations muddled but their aims are illogical. They demand a new Emperor, presumably one who is much more tolerant of open sedition but also Unwilling to pool resources with powerful potential allies against common threats. A Thargoid strategist would no doubt applaud the rise of Nova Imperium. Any junior officer knows that a divided enemy is a weaker opponent. This writer was born on the garden world of CD-63-201-4 in the heart of the empire. He remembers the federation from his youth as the Great Satan. A nakedly exploitative collection of graceless factory worlds devoid of honour. Upon leaving the Empire for the first time, he quickly discovered that this isn't true, and moreover, that similarly gross misrepresentations of our own culture are propagated elsewhere, which still prick him when he hears them. If you cut this correspondent, you'll find his blood runs blue. He cares deeply about the fate of the Empire and is proud of its distinct identity and established institutions. Strong alliances need weaken neither party. The absence of a consistent charge against the Emperor reveals the bankruptcy of ideas that hides behind Nova Imperium. Demanding change as a vehicle for your own ambition and chauvinism isn't a mark of love for your society but of disrespect for it.
2: The rise of nova imperium
3: there is no nova imperium there's only the empire
4: with these words emperor Arissa lavini de val proclaimed the isolationist revolution to be at an end as its leader lay dead at her feet she no doubt thought she was closing the page on an unpleasant chapter of imperial history but the truth is that nova imperium has changed everything not only by introducing a new potential heir to the throne, but by highlighting the current regime's repressive nature. It has brought into question what the Empire truly stands for, and what it might become. Prior to the return of the Thargoids in 3303, the Empire proudly held itself apart from the other superpowers, to the point of being engaged in a long-running Cold War against the Federation. Its identity was defined by opulence and grandeur, As evident in its sleekly designed ships, with social structures based on honour and status, there was a strong sense of splendid isolation. Within a short time, the Thargoid conflict forced the superpowers to work together for their very survival. Aegis was formed to unite all of humanity against the alien threat. The Cold War was replaced by sharing resources and military cooperation, and it even seemed possible that an imperial princess might marry a federal ambassador. The empire was changing, but at too fast a pace for many. In such an unstable political climate, a traditionalist resurgence was perhaps inevitable. Nova Imperium was established in mid-3304 and rapidly rose to prominence, It vowed to restore the Empire's purity by severing all ties with other superpowers and focusing on defending its own people. The organization's leader, decorated naval veteran Duke Queso Mordanticus, shrewdly referred to himself as the Imperator, a title imbued with the martial glories of yesteryear. Naturally, the authorities downplayed this extremist group, yet were concerned enough to order an investigation by the Imperial Internal Security Service, the IISS. From a leaked report, it's clear they understood how dangerous the Nova Imperium could become.
3: Its isolationist message resonates with those fearful of Thogoid invasion, and its rallying cry of Empire for the Imperials aligns with the more conservative citizenry. Its threat potential should not be underestimated.
4: Even so, Nova Imperium might have remained on the sidelines if not for the Imperator's masterstroke. Using his network of contacts, he had unearthed a secret about the Imperial family. Arissa, he discovered, was not the only illegitimate child sired by Emperor Hengis Duval. A brief affair with a household slave had resulted in a son, who was promptly banished and forgotten. Decades later, He'd raised a child of his own, a teenage boy who was now scraping a living as a trader, having inherited his father's old sidewinder. A boy whom Mordanticus had located and informed of his heritage. And so, in December 3304, Commander Hadrian Jansen was plucked from his humble spacefaring life to be heralded as Hadrian Augustus Duval, grandson of Emperor Hengist and figurehead of the isolationist movement the impact upon the empire was immediate the house of deval's lineage had remained unbroken for a thousand years and a new member of that family could not be ignored it was also clear that many citizens felt more comfortable with the idea of a male emperor as was traditional until arissa's coronation suddenly nova imperium had transformed from a political outsider into a shaper of history Divisions of opinion among the citizenry were reflected in the Senate, where a growing minority openly declared support for Hadrian. These rebel senators stopped short of demanding that Arissa step down, but did agree with Senator Winterstone's claim.
5: The imperial family must officially recognize Hadrian Duval as one of its own. Given that the emperor has no children, such an act would secure the future of the Duval bloodline.
4: As for Arissa, her unexpected silence on the matter only fuelled the controversy. Although official statements dismissed Hadrian's legitimacy, the lack of direct response from the Emperor herself was generally interpreted to show indecision and weakness. The ripples of unrest spread even beyond the Empire, affecting the Alliance and the Federation. Both Prime Minister Edmund Mahon and President Zachary Hudson voiced alarm at the prospect of inter-superpower cooperation ending should the isolationists come to power. They even raised the possibility of a direct intervention in Imperial affairs to protect Aegis and maintain defences against the Thargoids. During this time, both the Federal and Imperial navies increased their supply campaigns and performed fleet manoeuvres in border systems. The sabre-rattling behaviour of the Cold War had returned but with a greater likelihood of escalating to flashpoint. As more people flocked to the banner of Hadrian Duval the isolationist group quickly grew in strength as well as popularity. Imperator Mordanticus established a stronghold in his home system of Paresa, where well-armed ships of ex-naval and civilian supporters congregated. Nova Imperium now had the military muscle to support its political ideals. This was not something that the imperial establishment could tolerate. And so, Admiral Denton Petraeus ordered the illegal Armada to disperse. But Mardanticus was gambling that the empire's rulers would not attack their own citizens for fear of inciting further rebellion. Petraeus' strategy was to get others to do his dirty work. Eupini Limited, a corporation that also had a presence in the Paresa system, declared war against Nova Imperium with the support of independent auxiliaries. In response, Mordanticus put out a call to arms to any pilots pledged to Hadrian Deval, and the two sides met in combat, as was noted in the Imperial Herald.
3: Whether this is a one-off battle, or the beginning of an Imperial civil war, the outcome of the Battle of Paressa will influence the future of the Empire.
4: This was a dramatic turning point in Nova Imperium's fortunes. Within days, it became evident that most of the galactic community was still in favour of Arissa Lavini de Val. The isolationists had gathered some impressive firepower and fought valiantly, but there was little chance of withstanding such superior numbers. When the Battle of Parisa concluded, not only was the Nova Imperium Armada reduced to a fraction of its former size, but its commander was also lost. Eupini Limited vessels had managed to disable and board the flagship of Imperator Mordanticus, taking him prisoner. He was immediately transported to the Achanar system to answer charges of treason. It was widely expected that an example would be made of this former admiral-turned-traitor. All senators were recalled to capital to witness what would likely be a show trial in the grandest tradition, a way of dissuading future attempts at sedition but nobody knew just how far Arissa was prepared to go to ensure this. On 25th of January 3305, Mordanticus was brought into Senate House in shackles, with the galaxy watching via live transmission. The Emperor and Imperator faced each other for the first and last time, before Denton Petraeus wordlessly drew his sidearm and shot Mordanticus in cold blood. Before anyone could react, members of the Imperial Guard entered the chamber and opened fire on selected senators. All those who'd spoken in favour of Hadrian Duval were gunned down. As the Senate floor ran with blood, Arissa made her declaration that Nova Imperium was finished. But the massacre was just beginning. Reports soon came in of Imperial soldiers raiding the homes of isolationist ringleaders, of civilian ships being blasted from the skies, and of civilians arrested or executed in the streets. It became clear that Arissa's long silence had been delaying tactic, allowing agents and troops to be placed into position for a coordinated strike. The purge of Nova Imperium was thorough, calculated and merciless. News of this act of political cleansing travelled across the Empire like a shockwave. Yet there were few direct repercussions. Many were horrified by Arissa's actions, but an equal number were impressed at her resolve, and the majority seemed relieved that the threat of wide-scale civil war had been averted. Despite the executions and arrests, for most citizens, life went on. Equally significant was the absence of official response from Alliance and Federation leaders, They were unable to condemn the bloodshed, since it removed a group that threatened cooperation against the Thargoids, and so remained silent. As always, political expediency ruled the day. The last remnants of Nova Imperium retreated to the Parisa system. From there, Hadrian Duval made a broadcast to confirm that, as long as he survived, so would his cause.
5: Our martyred leader will never be forgotten. In his honour, I have taken the title of Imperator Dual until such time as the people choose me as their rightful emperor. Memento Mortanticus.
4: Despite this defiance, it was generally assumed that the conflict had played itself out. Orissa had won. She was clearly content to allow Hadrian to remain in exile rather than risk further controversy by arresting or killing a young man she was related to. Few ever expected to hear the name Nova Imperium again. And yet that name was being spoken, albeit as a whisper. By supporters who'd survived the purge, rekindling their faith at clandestine meetings. By fringe political groups wondering who was next to be declared enemies of the Empire. By senators who'd seen their colleagues ruthlessly slaughtered. Hadrian's call to remember Memento Mordanticus became watchwords for those who can never forget Orissa's brutality. In the aftermath of the Purge, a handful of surviving pilots from the Battle of Perisa worked diligently to secure a power base for their new Imperator. A second military force, Nova Navy, was formed from fresh recruits flocking to their aid. In a few short months, not only had Nova Imperium gained total control of Perisa, but was also expanding directly into the home systems of its old adversary, Eupini Limited. Further support came from an unexpected quarter in April 3305, when Princess Eichling de Val revealed she'd secretly journeyed to Parisa and met Hadrian in person. Although initially unimpressed with his claim to the throne, perhaps fearing that it might supersede her own, the persecution of his followers had made her sympathetic. Aisling claimed that opening a dialogue with Hadrian might heal divisions within the Empire, despite her progressive approach differing from his traditionalist stance. The two Duval cousins eventually agreed to a non-aggression pact, something which political commentators viewed as an astute move. Eschling and Hadrian have judged that this won't be enough for Arissa to perceive them as a challenge to her power, or risk further civil unrest. Even without a formal alliance, Aisling's proximity may provide much-needed protection to survivors of the Purge. In turn, Hadrian hinted that he may not be guided solely by his predecessor's principles.
5: Although I stand firm on my previously stated beliefs, at Ashling's request I will review Nova Imperium's policies with an open mind.
4: More than anything else, this willingness to adapt proves... Hadrian Duval, the commander who became an Imperator, has emerged from the shadow of Mordanticus to stand as a ruler in his own right. Time will tell if Emperor Arissa was correct that Nova Imperium is no more, or if a new empire can be forged by the next generation of the House of Duval.
6: The Far God Cult The return of the Thargoids has had a tremendous impact on humanity, causing great military, political, and economic change. But it also reshaped the spiritual landscape, creating the most controversial religion in modern history. With all their mystery and power, not to mention the casualties left in their wake, the species we call the Thargoids often inspire awe as well as terror. For some, this has evolved into outright worship, elevating the merely alien towards the divine. There is no official name for what is commonly known as the Far God cult, this nebulous organisation makes no announcements, publishes no material, and engages with no outsiders. This secretive nature makes it alluring to some, and unnerving to others. Most of the knowledge in the public domain comes from two people, independent journalist Gethin Okonkwo, and leading exotheologian Dr. Alfred Ulyanov. Their work has revealed tantalising glimpses of a belief system that is unlike any other. Dr. Ulyanov's academic paper published in June 3304 explained how this fringe sect has redefined the Thargoids in religious terms.
0: They believe that Thargoid ships are dark angels sent to prepare us for the true sacred presence, which will soon enter our plane of existence from another universe. They refer to this as the far God.
6: The Thar God itself is seen as omniscient, enigmatic, and uncaring about petty human concerns. It does not even exist in our dimension, perhaps inspired by the theory that Thargoid ships can hover in hyperspace. Therefore, this alien superbeing is even far more distant from us, geographically and theologically, than traditional deities. The far aspect of the God's name carries more meaning than just a phonetic similarity to Thargoid. According to Dr. Ulyanov's descriptions, followers of the Thargod God undertake a monastic existence. They wear unmarked hooded robes and congregate in hive chapels that are shrouded in darkness. Mimicry of Thargoid paraphernalia includes walls covered with a black, coral-like substance, pulsing green lights and an octagonal altar shaped like a Thargoid vessel. There is also a constant reek of ammonia, reflecting the Thargoid's supposed predilection for worlds with ammonia atmospheres. The sect is structured into chapters using a simple numeric system. Members follow a basic hierarchy with ascending ranks of adherent, witness, and herald, although others may exist. These seem to be awarded on basis of duration. When Gethan Conquo went undercover as a Fargod cultist, within three months he was known as third witness of the tenth chapter. Presumably he would have graduated to become a herald if he had remained longer. Significantly, there is no overall grand master or high priest figure. Or indeed any kind of spokesperson at all. This is fitting for a faith that does not promote individualism. Instead, followers give up their past lives in order to serve the commune, adopting what is commonly believed to be the Thargoids' insectoid nature and hive mentality. This minimalist approach is unlike other religions, where grandiose titles help to attract followers and infer a sense of importance. But God worshippers aim to divorce themselves from their human identities, so conventions such as personal names are abandoned. Who would follow such a faith? This was a question asked by many as awareness of the cult increased and the Thargoid conflict continued to rage. Why would anyone pray to a ferocious alien race trying to wipe us out? As with most cults, it appeals mainly to those struggling to survive or to fill the voids in their lives, people who have fallen between the cracks of society. But it also attracts fatalists since the foundation of its beliefs is that the Thargoid will soon arrive in our universe at which point all life will be extinguished. What the ignorant refer to as Thargoids are, in truth, the heralds of the Far God, preparing us for its manifestation. On that day, humanity will be destroyed, but we who have heeded the truth will ascend and be transformed. This transformation is open to interpretation, but may involve actually becoming or somehow merging with a Thargoid vessel. Some suggest that this has already happened to the inhabitants of escape pods captured by the alien ships, Given how little we know about Thargoids' biotechnology or their reasons for abducting humans, the concept remains disturbingly plausible. The apocalyptic nature of this creed is what first brought the Thargoids to public awareness via Gethenor Konkwo's research into Doomsayer cults. His work highlighted several radical groups such as Generation Omega, Homo Terminus, and the Order of Extinction. Their shared conviction was that the war against the Thargoids would be lost, and the era of mankind would come to an end. The most popular of these was the Church of the Eternal Void, which venerated that other ancient race, the Guardians. As Okonkwo observed, this religion ran along classic theological lines by describing the Guardians as beings of light and the Thargoids as hellish demons, a distinction that led to the Church declaring holy war against its rival. This rapidly led to violence. Guardian worshippers began openly attacking Thargoid worshippers in an echo of the galactic confrontation that took place between their gods millennia ago. This conflict was far more one-sided since the fatalistic followers of the Far God had already accepted that death was coming for the human race and so did not resist their fate. As Hive Chapels were firebombed and their inhabitants murdered, the security forces had no choice but to step in. Fargod chapters existed only in systems where freedom of religion was protected by law. Therefore, this illegal vigilantism was soon halted and the Church of the Eternal Void was disbanded. But greater trials were to come, since this incident brought about two shifts in public perception. First, by accusing them of serving the Thargoids, the Church made the Fargod cult look like dangerous fanatics rather than harmless eccentrics. Second, it was now proven that they never fought back, not even to protect their own lives. They were a soft target. In the Federation, a vocal campaign was spearheaded by Congressional candidate Juanita Bishop, whose inflammatory rallying cries were regularly featured by news feeds.
3: So the Sixth lovers can walk free, while those with the courage to oppose them they are put behind bars. It's the traitors who worship the enemy that should be illegal. Do you really want these degenerates to creep into your home at night and do Obscene alien things to your family!
6: The idea that the Fargod sect was a fifth column of Thargoid agents quickly gained traction. Many found it easy to believe that the secretive, sinister-looking cultists were alien spies in human form. The logic that actual enemy operatives would hardly advertise their true nature was ignored. Fear of Thargoid invasion was already widespread. Juanita Bishop's campaign placed huge pressure on Federation authorities. While some in Congress viewed her rhetoric as inhumane, others were keen to be seen as tough on Thargoids. When the Federal Intelligence Agency opened an official investigation into the sect, they were quick to justify this in quasi-military terms. Given the organization's proclaimed interest in the Thargoids, it is vital that we confirm they are not in contact with Thargoid forces, or being influenced by them. The media was soon awash with harrowing images. Hive chapels being stormed by security troops, with unresisting Thargod devotees dragged into armoured vehicles. Anyone remotely connected to the cult was arrested for questioning, including Dr. Ulyanov himself. This time, legislation on religious worship could not save them. Under federal law, any action to undermine the enemy during wartime was legal, even suspending citizens' civil liberties. And if the Thargoids were the enemy, so too were their disciples. There were also reports of hive-chapels being raided and found completely empty, with rumours that entire chapters had disappeared. Some said that the Thargoid spies were returning to their alien masters, others that cult members were simply abandoning their faith. This mystery contributed to the sense that the religion was unlikely to survive much longer. Salvation came in the form of Oconquo, who had been inspired by Dr. Ulyanov's research to live among the Thargoid cult, And covertly record his experiences using micro cameras. His testimony illustrated the hardships they had to endure.
7: During this time, I visited hive chapels in several different systems, narrowly escaping death when one was attacked by the Church of Eternal Void. On many occasions, I was physically and verbally abused by members of the public, including Juanita Bishop's campaign followers. At no point, did I see evidence of actual contact with the Thargoids bar the occasional use of alien material as
6: holy artifacts? Oconquo shared his data with the Federal Intelligence Agency, which reluctantly admitted that there was no sign of enemy collaboration. All detained worshippers were freed, and the sect was allowed to resume, albeit with many members dead or vanished. Even Congress conceded that things had gone too far turning Juanita Bishop into a scapegoat for cultivating civil unrest. The mystery of the missing followers remained until the discovery made in the Atain system. Two secret outposts had been established by the sect, named the Sanctum and the Prophet, both now abandoned with signs of having been attacked. Voice logs left by individual members explained that the outposts were void temples and that they were placing themselves into suspended animation to await the arrival of the Far God. There was no trace of any cryogenic pods, so what actually happened to them remains unknown. These emotive log entries exemplify the reasons why people joined the cult, ranging from despair to righteousness to scientific curiosity. For some, their conviction remained undimmed by recent events.
7: I wasted many years on false religions and hollow human faith. Now. I worship something real. Something powerful. The Far God calls to me in my dreams. It
8: is coming.
6: The Prophet held one more secret, revealed when a solitary cryogenic pod was excavated from beneath the ruins some months later. Its occupant, a teenage runaway, was revived and returned to her family. Although no other void temples have been found, it seems probable that many others still sleep amongst the stars. Despite depleted numbers, the God sect continues to defy extinction. Having survived persecution from all quarters, it now preserves itself by quietly seeding hidden groups of believers far and wide, as many mainstream religions were forced to do during their early years. It is ironic that a faith based around aliens has revealed much about our own inhumanity. It is, of course, understandable that many would be suspicious or repelled. There is every reason to suspect that a secretive underground cult that venerates hostile aliens would be performing inhuman, monstrous acts. And yet, there is no indication that this is the case. Examining sex history suggests that unlike the Thargoids they revere, they are always the victims, never the aggressors. They want nothing more than to be left in peace, while they wait for the end of the universe. <laughs>
2: Canon and the Thargoids The Heroes of Humanity's Greatest Puzzle
9: One of the most recognized logos in the bubble is a distinctly nerdy one. A test tube containing a Thargoid sensor floats in the center of three orbiting particles. Thousands of commanders, this correspondent included, proudly display it on their ships, having earned it in a community goal that gained incredible levels of support from across human-controlled space. Members of the Canon, or Canon Interstellar Research Group, Are as intellectual and dorky as their logo suggests. To understand canon and its influence, it's important to return to a relatively short period of time ago when many dismissed Thargoids as paranoid ramblings of onion head addicts and sentient alien life, if it existed at all, was completely unknown to us. A few short years after the creation of the frameshift drive, or FSD, some say derived from stolen Thargoid technology, led to an explosion of interstellar exploration, and commanders began to discover mysterious, unknown artifacts being ferried in secret Federal convoys. Less than a month later, in April of 3301, an intrepid commander named Dr. Arcanon started a thread on the Pilots' Federation Forum, which quickly became the longest thread in the Forum's history, as he and other commanders began to ask questions about these mysterious objects. Before long, Arcanon became a powerful spokesperson in the galactic community. As leader of the burgeoning network of scientists that would become canon, he called out Federation President Jasmina Halsey on Galnet News, demanding answers. The potential repercussions of these artifacts are staggering. We still know very little, but it is clear that the technology involved is very different to our own. In the meantime, he and his team were hard at work deciphering the mysterious objects, having managed to obtain some of them from federal convoys. The artifacts damaged any ships carrying them, as Professor Palin had at that time not yet developed his corrosion-resistant cargo racks. Still, research commenced. A breakthrough came when Commander Jmanis recognized the sounds emitted by the artifacts as a variation on an ancient Earth encoding scheme known as Morse Code. These garbled emissions, when fed into a translator, displayed a readout of whatever planetary body or space station was closest to the artifact at that time, an early indication of its purpose as a spying device for the Thargoids. Soon after this discovery, in early August of 3301, Dr. Arcanon formally announced the formation of the Canon Interstellar Research Group, headquartered in the Verati system. As the cannon began to build up their reputation and numbers, they made further discoveries about the artifacts. For the first time, they were discovered floating in open space near the Pleiades Nebula. This greatly accelerated the collection process, as scientists no longer needed to spend days searching for federal convoys to steal from. The artifacts now began to scan ships that approached them within a kilometer, and studies of their orientation revealed that, while free-floating, they oriented themselves towards Merope in the Pleiades. Intrigued by the Canon discoveries, engineer Professor Palin opened an investigation of the artifacts, but was quickly shut down by federal authorities. Undaunted, cannon scientists continued to collect and study them. Calling on assistance from a variety of independent pilots, they began to lock down systems where artifacts could be more easily found, displaying in the so-called UA shell, and collected the objects en masse for study. In early October 3301, the artifacts began to emit new Morse code messages. After a few days, Commander Mike Juliet Kilo deduced that these new transmissions were, in fact, primitive wireframe drawings of ships scanned by the artifacts. In the meantime, starports began to mysteriously shut down their facilities, afflicted by technical maladies. It was discovered that the artifacts, when sold on a station's black market, would corrode the station's facilities just as they would on any ship holding them in a cargo rack. While Professor Palin renewed his research in an independent star system, there were no further developments of note for several months. In December of 3301, rumors of bizarre structures on the surface of airless moons began to circulate, and Cannon launched a search. By January of 3302, Commanders Octo and Snacks had located alien structures on the surface of Merope 5C. These structures were quickly dubbed barnacles, and Commanders could harvest strange meta-alloys from them, which proved effective at countering the artifact's deteriorative effect on space stations. Commanders immediately swarmed to the barnacles, avidly harvesting meta-alloys, while Palin continued to conduct more research, developing his corrosion-resistant cargo racks and deducing that the artifact's deteriorative effect was a self-repair mechanism. The Federation deployed capital ships to protect the barnacles from commanders, though many believed it was an excuse to exercise control over the valuable meta-alloys. In June of 3302, shortly after the Jacques system planned jump to Beagle Point failed and the station vanished from known space, presumably due to artifacts being sold at the station's black market, a new kind of alien object was found. This unknown probe was similar in form to the artifact and was also being ferried around by convoys. At first, the probe seemed to be a more inert version of the artifact. In July of 3302, after Jacques' station was rediscovered and a meta-alloy transport commenced to repair it, Canon scientists discovered that scanning the probe with an advanced discovery scanner module caused the object to emit an EMP burst, which temporarily disabled all ships in its area. During the burst, the probes also emitted sounds similar to the artifact's. These noises were decoded to reveal audio spectrographs, conveying planetary data and transmitting it to a location on Merope 5C. In August of 3302, free-floating probes were discovered. Late in that month, a gangster named Otto Granger led Cannon scientists and other commanders on a chase to uncover a discovery he said that the whole galaxy would want to see. Within three days, canon commanders Noctrach, Belalekax III, and Ihazovich Shared that they had found the Discovery, a crashed alien spaceship which strongly resembled descriptions of Thargoid scout ships. The Empire was quick to seize on the Discovery, deploying capital ships to guard the wreck. In October of 3302, Commanders X. Death and Bosch von Ronsenberg reported yet another incredible discovery that of a set of intact alien ruins on the planet of Sinufi XR H D11 102. 1B. Not only were the ruins intact, but they contained various alien artifacts which could be collected, as well as obelisks that transmitted data to ships that scanned them. It was the very beginning of humanity's investigations into the race we now know as the Guardians. In the meantime, far from the bubble in Colonia, commanders discovered non-sentient fungal lifeforms growing on planets, sustained by volcanic vents. These growths consumed the community with excitement for a while, until commanders began to find further alien crash sites back in the Pleiades. Along with these discoveries, they began to notice floating objects called unregistered comms beacons, believed to be deployed by the Sirius Corporation. Through deciphering transmissions of these beacons, Canon scientists located a third crash site on HIP 17403. This site was the most significant yet, because the vessel located there was larger, and appeared to have brought down several human ships along with it, a greater discovery seemed imminent. In January of 3303, footage of a massive alien vessel, which snatched Commander D.P. Sayer from hyperspace jump, spread like wildfire. Before long, any commander traveling through the Pleiades was at risk of being hyperdicted and scanned, although the Thargoid vessels refused to engage commanders beyond these brief encounters. Conventional scanning technology was rendered ineffectual by these vessels. In the meantime, Canon busied itself with studying the other great alien mystery, the ruins discovered on airless worlds. teaming up with engineer Ram Tah, Canon started up its new r and d division to assist other commanders in conducting studies of the ruins. The aliens in question were dubbed the guardians, and with the help of various commanders, Ram Ta deciphered a wealth of archaeological data about them. The Guardians, it seemed, had once been similar to humans until great aspirations had brought them down. In April of 3303, once again, the galactic community rang with the news of another shocking discovery. Commanders Lexic Maze and Eiffel-1 discovered the Hulk of a long-lost generation ship from the era before conventional space travel. The vessel, the Lyakon, was the first of many that would be discovered in the ensuing months. As commander groups, cannon among them, began to build great megaships in preparation for upcoming challenges, the Thargoids began to appear in greater numbers. Commanders discovered clusters of ships destroyed by the unknown vessels, which left clouds of corrosive green gas behind. The vessels also appeared above the mysterious barnacles, harvesting meta-alloys with beams of green light. In June of 3303, Commander Edward Lewis confirmed the Thargoids' return to human space, and the destruction of a federal capital ship. A beacon in the wreckage broadcast a message of warning for all commanders. Two weeks later, elaborate Thargoid structures were discovered on planets. Some believed they were bases, or crashed motherships. Either way, using the unknown artifacts and probes, now reclassified as Thargoid sensors and probes respectively, in combination with Thargoid links found at the site, commanders infiltrated the sites in their SRVs. They activated intriguing displays at the structure's center, which appeared to be displays of the galaxy. It was a beautiful sight to see. Shockingly, artifacts retrieved from the Guardian sites were met with more violent reactions from these facilities, which destroyed them in violent bursts. This was a hint of some ancient conflict between the two Elder races. Cannon commanders working with the Thargoid lynx discovered they could detect the distance of the lynx to whichever Thargoid site was closest at the time. In a matter of days, researchers had uncovered 208 of these sites, including one in the permit-locked system of HIP 22460. Significantly, all of these sites were located within the aforementioned UA sphere within 150 light-years of Merope. More official authorities began to respond to these developments. Professor Palin enlisted commanders in the collection of Thargoid fragments for his research, and the three superpowers established the Aegis Initiative to guard against the Thargoid threat. From then on, war with the Thargoids began to be joined. Now the whole of the bubble is engaged in the struggle. Canon Research has a well-earned reputation for thoroughness and scientific accuracy. Their policies are publicly available and very transparent, and their expertise is impressive. Just reading through any of their numerous reports can make a layman's head spin. Recently, in conjunction with the Anti-Xeno Initiative, Canon released a detailed report on the damage split of various kinds of weaponry, kindly brought to our attention by Commander Maligno. It's a perfect example of the kind of work they do. Work that one might reasonably assume the pilots' federation or weapons manufacturers might provide, but instead, Canon devotes their resources to the task the report included references to further studies on the effects of these weapons on Thargoid vessels. Crucial war research, if there was any. From the beginning of recent scientific discoveries, Canon has been at the forefront of experimentation and the sharing of knowledge. As humanity's struggle against the Thargoids drags on, and its capacity for interstellar exploration continues to expand, we here at Sagittarius I hope they will continue their excellent and vital work of understanding the galaxy we live in. LCU, No Fool Like One, is a canon scientist. We spoke to him about his contributions to humanity's understanding of the Thargoids. What has been the most useful contribution you've made to Thargoid research?
10: I'm glad you asked. Having personally conducted over 7,000 Thargoid autopsies, I discovered that you could make a wonderful Thargoid resin jam. It's a bit feisty, as the resin has a tendency to corrode utensils, and as we unfortunately found out at Christmas, it can eat through the hull of the gnosis. I'd asked Igor to use the meta-alloy pans that Professor Palin had supplied me, but let's not dwell on that. I've devised a delightful layered biscuit that has an aperture through which a glistening blob of Thargoid resin jam protrudes. I'm hoping at some point that the Council will allow me to set up a community goal to set up production facilities on the Gnosis so that we can sell the biscuits across the galaxy.
9: What, in your view, is the biggest mystery about the Thargoids?
10: Where do they come from? Where do they go? I was once lucky enough to encounter a Thargoid wake that, for reasons unknown, remained open long after the Cyclops had jumped out. There was an exclusion zone that I could not penetrate, but inside there were tantalizing glimpses of what looks like an orange star in a green nebula. I would do anything to find out how to unlock that technology and follow them into their realm. Did any of the Codex
9: revelations surprise you?
10: At the moment, we're still cataloging the data, but there are certainly lots of very interesting finds out there. I'm very looking forward to visiting all of the phenomena our commanders have located, and who knows, maybe I'll create some new recipes. One of your most well-known tools is the Thargoid plugin used by many pilots. What made you create it? I remember it well. It was back in October 3303, and I had just completed a plug-in to convert still images to a more suitable format for transmission, and a navigation system that would show you the location of the nearest neutron star. I was looking for more projects, and I found a message by Commander M. Volgrand, who was looking for people to fill in a survey to log hyperdictions and interactions with Thargoids in the Pleiades region we established that it was possible to interface with the ship telemetry to detect hyperdictions and transmit the data to a central database as well as log any USS drops into non-human signal sources. At the time, the data was being loaded manually into a 3D star map created by Commander Piranha9 so I hit upon the idea of adapting Canon's 3D maps to use our data so that it would be accessible, interactive and up-to-date. How long did it take you to make it? The short answer is that I had a working version within a day of responding to M. Volgrand. But the true answer is that it will never be finished, as it's constantly evolving. The first modifications we added were links that allowed the commanders to manually enter data that wasn't available in the telemetry. The manual data capture became more sophisticated as the Thargoid threat intensified, but eventually became obsolete when the Pilots' Federation released upgrades that gave us improved telemetry. We now have a team at Canon, led by the head of R&D, Commander D. Mihafe, who are working day and night to provide the next generation of infrastructure to support the huge volume of data we are getting both from the increased number of users and the new features.
9: How many people do you estimate use it?
10: By the time we decommissioned the old USS Survey and replaced it with a Canon plugin, we had over 1,000 commanders using the software. Monthly usage was up to 600 commanders, but that actually translates to around 150 per day using the software. Usage appears to have died down a little as the change in Thargoid tactics mean that AXI operatives are less reliant on recorded kills for monitoring progress. What is the data used for? The original plugin was used for recording USS drops and hyperdictions. We've since stopped recording the USS drops as EDSM is now able to provide commanders with the ability to search for them. However, we're still collecting NHSS data to record Thargoid locations. Now at a much faster rate with the changes to the Discovery Scanner allowing commanders to gather information without having to encounter a Thargoid. In some ways I miss the old days when you had to run the gauntlet to trigger the software. The NHSS data we gather is displayed on 3D star maps which shows us the disposition of Thargoid assets. The ability to visualise data is essential. As well as the NHSS data, we are now capturing codex reports which will enable us to build up maps of other phenomena. There are a huge number of discoveries and our small team are struggling to keep up with the effort of cataloguing them. Perhaps the most popular feature was the logging of kills. We will still be capturing this but the sheer volume has been staggering and caused our database to collapse on more than one occasion. There have now been over 460,000 confirmed Thargoid kills. The logging of the data isn't the whole picture. We also have a patrol system that allows us to quickly set up surveys in areas of interest. Currently, we are guiding a group of students at Miskatonic University through a survey of all the Thargoid surface sites. The aim is to build up a catalogue of aerial photos of the sites so that we can classify them and so that we have reference images to go back to when we have the inevitable claims that the sites are growing. In parallel with this, we are searching for systems that have the right conditions for Thargoid surface sites. Students simply fly through the Pleiades and the patrol system tells them where to go next and what to do. Other patrols we have configured to provide commanders with the location of the nearest AX combat zones and damaged and repairing starports. I'm currently working on a display that can show you what codex items have been identified in the current system you're in. This means that if you do a full system scan and find something that hasn't been reported before, you'll know you have found something special. The Thargoids remain inscrutable. And we've been down a number of blind alleys in our research. Though we haven't made any real breakthroughs, the value of the data is that we're able to check the veracity of rumours and claims. One of the new features we are hoping to add in the near future is a system that will be able to alert us when something out of the ordinary occurs, such as hyperdictions or NHSS outside of the usual range or unique codex discoveries.
9: Have any of your models turned out to be spectacularly
10: wrong? I'm not entirely sure what you mean. I've had plenty of disproven theories and research that went down blind alleys. There have been many failures in my software that have left me red-faced. For instance, a recent bug meant that the Canon plugin can, in some circumstances, uninstall itself. But no failure quite matches the moment when my secret human Thargoid student exchange program was discovered by the Ethics Committee. Actually, perhaps it would be best if you didn't mention that, but can can you take that out, can't you? What are you most proud of in your work? I'm proud simply to have been accepted by canon, especially after my suspension from the Miskatonic University by the meddling Ethics Committee. I would never have believed that I could have gone from disgrace to being elected to the Canon Council in such a short space of time.
2: The
11: Building Blocks of Life Space is full of life. It can be found on planets as varied as water worlds to gas giants, airless rocks to earth-like garden worlds. But how does it start? Brain trees growing in a vacuum do not obviously have much in common with the giant nebulous creatures fabled to graze in cloud layers of gas giants. First of all, let's establish what life is. Thermodynamically, life is an open system, a system in which energy and material exchange with the environment are possible. It makes use of gradients, of salt concentration, for example, in its surroundings to create imperfect copies of itself. It is a system of reduced entropy at the cost of energy that means that life can reduce a state of disorder in a certain partially closed-off area by spinning some form of energy life is an energy-powered anti-entropy machine that self-perpetuates this is a very complicated description for a simple cell cells have membranes to confine their relative internal order against the much more chaotic environment and are able to reproduce by making imperfect copies of themselves. This is the physical description of life focusing on energy and order. Biologists use a different, messier system to identify life, a checklist of characteristics with problematic edge cases and exceptions. In biology, life is considered a characteristic of something self-preserving that furthers or reinforces its existence in a given environment. This can be described using these traits one homeostasis the regulation of the internal environment to maintain a constant state an example of this would be pumping water out of the cell that entered through osmosis two organization the structural composition of one or more cells which are the basic units of life three metabolism the transformation of energy by conversion of chemicals and different forms of energy into cellular components, as well as the decomposition of organic matter, catabolism. As mentioned above, life requires energy to maintain its internal organization. Four, growth. More organic matter is formed than destroyed. The system maintains a higher rate of anabolism than catabolism. Growing organisms increase the size of all their parts rather than just accumulate matter. 5. Adaption. Living organisms change over time in response to changes in their environment. Without this, no evolution would be possible. 6. Life reacts to stimuli. Be it a unicellular organism, Reacting to changes in the chemical composition of their environment, or a human closing their eyes to strong light, these reactions are often expressed through motion. 7. Reproduction The ability to produce new individual organisms of the same species, be it through asexual cell division or sexual reproduction from two parent organisms so we can somewhat messily define it. But this doesn't explain how it comes about. For that, we need to go deeper. What are the fundamental molecules that formed the first small cells? Despite the rich abundance of it we found in the cosmos, there is still no scientific consensus on the origin of life. The ancient Greeks had a rather simple solution to this, why believe that a structured and regular world arose out of an undirected process when you can believe that some intelligence designed it? Over the centuries, what we've discovered about the universe has left less and less room for gods, however. Most scientists agree that life on Earth originated in water. The molecules mainly build up upon the miller a experiment and the work of Sidney Fox whose experiments proved that amino acids and other organic molecules could develop under the conditions of the early Earth. They proved that water, methane, ammonia and hydrogen can, under the right conditions, form amino acids – the very molecules that make up all proteins. On top of that, phospholipids, compounds of fatty acids, glycerol and phosphoric acid spontaneously come together to form lipid bilayers, the most simple form of cell membranes. That this is the origin of biological relevant molecules is broadly agreed, however, what came after that is still up for dispute – DNA or RNA? Proteins or genes? Genes encode proteins, while proteins do all the cells work – it's unlikely that they arose independently. As they have a sort of chicken-and-egg relationship. Water is the only solvent capable of supporting life on Earth-like worlds. This is because it is capable of dissolving all relevant molecules needed for life. Or perhaps these molecules became important for life because they are soluble in water. Water is an anomaly among molecules in that crystalline water, known as ice, is less dense than liquid water. It reaches its highest density at around four degrees Celsius, while nearly any other substance we know of reaches its highest density when solid. That is the reason ice floats on water and why lakes or other bodies of water with enough depth only rarely freeze completely. But not all life depends on water, does it? We know from records of INRA experiments that Thargoids use ammonia instead of water as a solvent. They are ammonia-based, in the same way we are water-based. You may know ammonia as a horribly stinky solution in water. However, on planets big enough and with high enough atmospheric pressure, ammonia can be a liquid by itself, and an excellent solvent for life forms. These life forms aren't like any we recognize from Earth-like worlds, but they most certainly fulfill all the criteria for life mentioned earlier. There is even a theory of how this life may have come to exist. The chemical reaction by which nitrogen and hydrogen combine to form ammonia actually releases energy. So on a planet with high enough pressure to support liquid ammonia and with an atmosphere consisting mainly of hydrogen and nitrogen, protolife might have used this reaction as an energy source. This is similar to carbon-based life on earth where carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen react to form carbon dioxide and water. The ammonia produced this way would at least partially evaporate into the atmosphere, where it could be then split up by sunlight into hydrogen and nitrogen, both of which could be fed back into circulation. Again, this compares to plants on earth which take energy from sunlight to split water and carbon dioxide to produce carbon compounds with oxygen as a byproduct. This ammonia as solvent could be the cause for the caustic cloud that targoid vessels leave behind when destroyed. Carbon is a very versatile element that can react with a large number of other elements, hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen being the three most often used in physiological processes. Are there other elements that, like carbon, could act as some kind of universal link between other elements while at the same time being abundant in the universe? They are, with certain limitations. The so-called carbon group of elements on the periodic table are a sensible place to start looking. The element directly below carbon is silicon. This element is a highly valued raw material for use in semiconductor technology, though it is mainly for its physical rather than chemical characteristics. Like carbon, it can form up to four bonds with other elements And is a very common element in the known universe though not quite as common as carbon silicon cannot react with as many different elements as carbon but this is both a benefit for life as well as a limitation it makes silicon less versatile but also less susceptible to bond with impurities than carbon which readily does silicon has other drawbacks as a candidate for the basis of life Functional groups in organic molecules often contain different elements like hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen. They contain elements like iron, phosphorus and sulfur, among many more. Silicon can't form the basis of molecules this complex, which is why silicon-based molecules are often described as monotonous, compared to carbon-based ones. The main reason for this is that the lower in the periodic table of elements An element is situated, the bigger, having larger mass and atomic radius, it becomes. Simply put, silicon is big and has difficulty forming double bonds the same way carbon can. The carbonyl group, a fundamental group in all amino acids and many other organic molecules, features a double bond between a carbon and an oxygen atom. Silicon would be less likely to give rise to molecules of that complexity. Silicon would also need to use a different solvent. Salines are silicon hydrogen molecules analogous to alkaline hydrocarbons which make up most of the fossils used during the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries for fuel. These salines react very strongly with water, which is why water couldn't work as a solvent for silicon-based life. However, polymers of silicon and oxygen called silicones are much more stable compared to salines, and could be a viable option as a foundation for life forms with water as a solvent. Furthermore, there are known forms of life in earth-like atmospheres that, although their fundamental molecules are not built upon silicon, use silicon in their biology. Marine diatoms extract silicon from seawater and incorporate it into their cell walls in forms of its dioxide called silica. Go to the beach on any earth-like world and look down. The sand there is what remains when these tiny life forms die. So life as we commonly think of it rests upon the versatility of carbon with water as a solvent. But this is not the only combination. Hopefully, as our ships develop the avionics to pierce the atmospheres of more worlds, our understanding of the stuff of life will broaden too. Shipyard,
2: Crate Phantom.
8: In this article, we take a look at the Crate Phantom, the newest addition to the Falcon de Lacy Fold. The Crate Mark II launched to much fanfare and enormous popularity in late June 3304, and was quickly followed in December by the Crate Phantom. How does the new variant shape up, now that it's been around long enough for commanders to gain a proper appreciation of the ship? The recent history of Falk and DeLacy and new variants of their ships has been spotty, to say the least. The Viper Mark IV, while having its advocates, has not set the universe alight. The Cobra Mark IV, covered in the previous issues of this magazine, is not at all well regarded. Most commentators agree that it's slow, underpowered, and overweight, and does not make a worthy successor to the legendary Cobra Mark III. Furthermore, its sale is limited to only certain Pilots' Federation members, a decision that seems bizarre, especially considering its lackluster performance. It wasn't entirely surprising that the ship-buying public were skeptical of the Crate Phantom, at least at first. Would Falcon de Lacy once again remove all the worthwhile elements of its predecessor, or could they finally make a ship variant that was at least optimized in some way? We covered the history of the crate in detail in issue 20, Snakeoff, Crate vs. Python, so we won't dwell on it here. But to recap, the original Crate Lightspeeder had always been a ship that had caught the imagination despite its faults, and Falcon DeLacy decided to recapture this legend in modern form. The Crate reboot, launched as the Crate Mark II, was an instant hit catching even the Pilots' Federation hub at Jameson Memorial by surprise when, at one point on the ship's launch day, every single medium pad was occupied by a commander in a new Crate Mark II. With the Phantom, Falcon Delacy's clear intention was to build a lighter-weight budget version of the Mark II. The ship is priced at 8 million credits fewer than the Mark II, the base model selling for 37.4 million credits. The basic hull weighs in at 270 tons, some 50 tons lighter than its older stablemate. This weight and cost reduction doesn't come without consequences, of course. The Phantom has fewer internal slots and lacks the Mark II's fighter bay. It has two large and two small hardpoints, versus the Mark II's three large and two small. Externally, both variants are similar, with the most striking difference being the main thrusters which are grouped in line on the Phantom rather than the two rectangular pods on the Mark II. From the commander's seat, the Phantom retains the panoramic view, especially downwards, enjoyed by commanders of the Mark II, as well as the expansive bridge. It would be a disservice to both the Mark II and the Phantom to describe where the commander sits as a mere cockpit. The Great Phantom seems to have been generally well-received, particularly amongst the exploration community. Given the issues with all the failed, cheaper and follow-up versions of successful ships that have been released in recent years, can the crate phantom break the spell and find a useful niche? The main problem with many of these follow-up ships, particularly Falcon DeLacy's, is that they have removed the one thing that made the predecessor worthwhile in the first place. For example, the Cobra Mark III's speed was a main selling point for that ship, but the Cobra Mark IV is very slow. Perhaps Falk and DeLacy were fearful that a good Cobra Mark IV would have cannibalized sales of the Mark III, but instead they handed the niche the Mark IV might have occupied to their competitors. The usual fate for a company worried about cannibalizing their own sales. Things are different with the Crate Phantom. It seems like Falk and DeLacy have learned a lot from their earlier missteps and have managed to release a variant that can fill its own niche without fatally compromising the design. The Phantom, for instance, is actually a bit faster than the Crate Mark II, and it retains the Mark II's good maneuverability. It is perhaps even more fun to fly than its predecessor. The Mark II was a decent exploration ship to begin with, but the lighter-weight Phantom is even better, and an excellent step-up for explorers from Lakon's ASP Explorer. To get an idea what pilots think of the ship, we asked for opinions from the ship-buying public, and it seems like no one has a bad word for the ship. Unsurprisingly, many indicate that the Phantom's niche is exploration. Dr. Nagy
1: I use mine for scouting. It's easy to get a good jump range. I'm getting 65 light years with just engineering from Farseer and the Guardian frameshift drive booster. Low fuel consumption means you can go far without main sequence stars. Commander
8: Yannick was a little cooler, but still very positive.
1: To be fair, if you know the Mark II... The Phantom is only marginally different. I used the Mark II on Distant Worlds 2, and now the Phantom as a scout ship. Other than the range and the fighter bay, there's not much difference. The flying seems the same. It's a good, versatile ship.
8: In light of this, how do the ranges of the Mark II and Phantom compare? A lightly engineered Phantom with a 5A shield will jump 56 light-years at a time with a full payload compared to the 51.75 light-years of a Mark II with the same equipment. With the hold empty, the range increases to 60 light-years. The test loadout to find these figures showed that the Phantom could simultaneously be a fuel-rat and hull-seal ship, and carry an auto-field maintenance unit for repairing its own modules. Commander Outlier. The Phantom is the best choice for a fuel-rat, once you scrap the docking computer. For years now, Commander's exploration ships of choice have been the ASP Explorer and, for those who want to go big, the Anaconda. The introduction of the Crate Phantom has added another option. Commander Awe Bob believes that the Phantom has taken the crown from Lakon.
9: The Phantom is spectacular for exploration and is the king of the mid-sized exploration ships. The cockpit is clean and open-feeling, while the ASP looks dirty inside. Getting your SRV back into the ship is very easy. Just run into the front landing gear, and you're in position. And the flat top of the ship is a great perch for your SRV. Nice for taking photos. Very
8: nice. So no more of that awkward back and forth when trying to get into position for SRV recovery, and a good photo platform to boot. Heat shedding is often a ship trait that is glossed over, but it can be an important factor in how a ship performs on a long expedition. After long strings of non-sequence stars, explorers have to fuel up. Heat shedding can make a huge difference in how long the task takes, determining whether you can remain close to the star with your fuel scoop operating at maximum capacity and be ready to go in 30 seconds, or are forced to sit at the margins, sweating it out while you wait for your fuel tank to fill at a snail's pace. It turns out the crate Phantom is excellent in this regard. Commander Ram Farrer Spiff It's an easy ship
12: to keep cool, so a 10-second fuel up at the exclusion zone border is a painless cinch.
8: The Phantom's ability to deal with heat also means that when jonking, traveling at speed by dropping in a system honking the Discovery Scanner, quickly checking for interesting planets on the FSS, then immediately jumping to the next star if the system contains nothing of note, is fast. A jonking explorer can skim the star with the fuel scoop running at maximum power, and recover the fuel used in the last jump before the FSD is cooled down. This is a great time saver for hull seals and fuel rats on emergency calls. With good heat management, pilots can even start charging the FSD before they're outside of fuel scoop range, saving more time. Falcon and DeLacy have finally built a successor ship which is objectively good, albeit somewhat specialized. While it's more expensive than the Asp Explorer by a solid margin, the value proposition it gives is perhaps superior. It doesn't discard many of the most valued traits of the Crate Mark II. It retains excellent flying qualities at great speed, and adds further potential for travellers, whether the ship is used as a taxi to speed across the bubble, or to journey to Beagle Point. Commander Mad Mags My previous taxi was an Asp
4: Explorer. I recently switched to a Phantom, and will never go back. I can fit all I need for material gathering, planetary mining and do all my engineering travel in it.
8: Lakon, watch out.
2: What's the matter with dark matter?
4: We think there's something there, but we can't see it. Just what is dark matter? In the 20th century when mankind was restricted to just looking out into space rather than easily traversing it as normal daily activity, many people took their gleaming instruments of the day and looked out at the stars. One such, a Swiss astronomer named Fritz Zwicky, would leave a legacy he could not have dreamt of at the time. Science is all about cross-checks and consistency. If two models predict different results, scientists test them to determine which one better fits the evidence. Spiky set out to test a model called the Virial Theorem. A very simplified form of it is, in a stable spherical distribution of gravitationally interacting objects, the total kinetic energy of the objects is equal to minus half the total gravitational potential energy. The proof is highly mathematical, suffice to say, that we see evidence for it in small systems we observe, and even electrons orbiting atoms obey it. At large scales, we can look at individual stars. We can determine the stellar class of a star, and therefore its mass, from both its luminosity, brightness, and readings of spectral lines from spectrometers, which break starlight into its constituent parts, like a prism. Once we know the mass of the star, we know its gravitational potential energy, relative to the system being considered. A spectrometer can also give you a measurement of velocity. Just as your onboard computer changes the pitch of the engine sound, your wingman produces when they zoom past you, known as the Doppler shift, light behaves the same way. Light blue shifts when the object producing it is moving toward you, and red shifts when the object is moving away. Therefore, The presence and degree of red or blue shift in the spectral lines of starlight gives us an indication of in which direction and at what speed the star is travelling. This tells us the kinetic energy a star possesses, again, relative to the system being considered. In 1933, Zwicky trained his instruments on a cluster of galaxies, the Coma Cluster. After running through the calculations, comparing the two measurements he was able to take, the kinetic energy of the system and the gravitational potential, he was faced with a startling result. They did not match, and the inaccuracy wasn't small. Back then, if a number was within a factor of 10 of the predicted result, it was accepted as accurate in astronomy. The mass predicted by the kinetic energy of the cluster was approximately 800 times the mass as measured from the luminosity. If the galaxies were made up entirely of stars, this was troublesome, and he coined the name Dunkle Materia, or dark matter, for the missing mass. The mystery remained a point of contention in the scientific community, which acknowledged the measurement, but largely ignored it, dismissing it as a mistake, or readily explainable by a combination of the Virial theorem's known limitations, and the light-to-mass conversion not accounting for lower-luminosity stellar objects. Around 40 years later, With even more sensitive spectroscopy equipment available, an American astronomer named Vera Rubin trained her instruments onto our nearest neighbour, the Andromeda Galaxy. She was interested in the rotational properties of the galaxy's gas clouds and stars. Like Svicky, she was presented with something puzzling. Andromeda is a spiral galaxy, much like the Milky Way. The distribution of stars and gas is in a spherical central bulge, which transitions into a flat disk. On modelling the predicted velocities in such a matter distribution, Newtonian and Keplerian gravity predict a linear rise in orbital velocity from the galactic centre peaking at the transition to the disk, followed by a decreasing curve inversely proportional to the square root of the distance from the centre. Instead, what was observed was a flattening of the orbital velocity curve out to very large distances, even in the ill-defined fuzzy edges of the galaxy. In short the whole galaxy was spinning, edges and all, much faster than predicted. If galaxies spinning at those speeds are to be stable and not spew their stars out into the void, they must have enough mass, and therefore gravity, to hold the stars in place. Rubin deduced that there must be some additional unobserved material present within the galaxy. Not wanting to accept this measurement uncorroborated, Astronomers measured the rotational curves of as many galaxies as possible to see if they rotated at similarly higher speeds than expected. They found that they did. Zwicky's analysis was revisited and physicists began to refer to the missing mass as dark matter. Since then, have come several other observations, such as discrepancies in gravitational lensing, the bending of light around massive objects as predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity and readily observed around black holes. These discrepancies were observed around galaxy clusters, suggesting a large amount of unseen material extending far outside the optical component of a galaxy. A smoking gun for dark matter was discovered in the bullet cluster. This comprises two interacting galaxy clusters that have recently passed through each other. What is interesting is that the gravitational lensing places the centre of mass of the two clusters ahead of the observed luminous matter. This suggests that the dark matter presence in each cluster passed through each other unperturbed, except gravitationally, while the regular luminous matter, stars, experienced an additional drag effect from local electromagnetic forces. There have also been the discoveries of so-called dark galaxies, extremely diffuse, Low-density galaxies have very high orbital velocities for no obvious reason. Again, lensing tells us there is a large mass that keeps these objects bound. We just can't see it. So what is the matter with dark matter? Is it just matter we can't see, such as planets, black holes, dim stellar objects such as brown dwarfs or distant neutron stars? Or is dark matter just a fudge factor? to create an industry of work when, in truth, it is gravity that is misunderstood, or is there something else at play entirely? If dark matter is in fact just normal, what we call baryonic matter, planet's dust and stuff, the best place to look is our own galaxy, the Milky Way. In order for baryonic matter to explain the rotation observed, a huge amount of compact stellar objects would have to be present in a drastically different distribution than that of regular stars. While black holes are hard to observe, we can observe close binary black hole systems – astronomical objects orbiting one another – and feeding black holes that produce massive bursts of X-rays. The environment around the Milky Way is largely quiet. If there were many more black holes than we observe, at least a proportion of these would emit these X-rays. We also do not observe groupings of such objects in the halo around the Milky Way. If we instead turn to dim stellar objects, such as brown dwarfs to explain the missing mass – we should see a local density near Sol, as many orders of magnitude larger than we observe. In short, for the Milky Way to be spinning at the speed it is, and retain its shape, there should be much, much more non-luminous stuff in it. Okay, so it's likely not regular baryonic matter. What about our theory of gravity? Maybe we just don't understand gravity? Perhaps. But any extension to gravitational models must fit the observations. Many people have produced so-called modified Newtonian dynamics models, but they all feature one significant drawback. They cannot be made to fit gravitational lensing observations, and explaining the bullet cluster is simply impossible. So, the problem is likely not with our understanding of gravity. With these two seemingly unlikely, let's round up the evidence and distill from it what we can state about dark matter. It does not interact, or only weakly interacts, with baryonic matter. It travels at speeds much lower than that of light, so tends to clump around galaxies. It interacts with gravity. It has mass. It's stable, or has a decay rate longer than the age of the universe. This doesn't give seemingly much to play with, but it's actually a treasure trove to a theoretical physicist. By the 21st century, particle physics had developed a model to describe most happenings around low, medium and high energy physics, known as the Standard Model. This model was not complete, and much like dark matter, had observational problems in very specific areas. Any proposed solutions to these problems must not have contradicted predictions made by other parts of the Standard Model in order for the whole to be a credible theory of how the universe works. Working within these parameters, Theorists proposed a few solutions to the dark matter conundrum. 1. Weakly interacting massive particles. A proposal and a prediction made by several models, including one called supersymmetry. These particles only interact via gravity and the weak nuclear interaction responsible for beta decay or radiation. These are considered the easiest to search for. 2. Axions a hypothetical particle that allows a coupling route between the photon and the magnetic field. 3. Heavy sterile neutrino The discovery of something called neutrino oscillation established that neutrinos have mass, and the proposed mechanism it operates by can predict a heavy dark sector neutrino that interacts only gravitationally. There are other wackier models beyond these three as well. There are many families of theories to explain dark matter, situation being more like a playground of models. The first step, then, is to start searching for these proposed particles. The easiest to detect should be the weakly interacting massive particle. But how to find it? First, we must consider just how weakly interacting the weakly interacting massive particle has to be. Neutrinos, for reference, have an interaction strength cross-section so low that the mean free path in lead is roughly a light year. In plain speak, This means that if you constructed a lead bar one light year long and fired neutrinos down its length, one over E of them, approximately 37%, would interact in some manner. Weakly interacting massive particles present far lower interaction strength than this. Searching for it is thus a game of producing an enormous detector in which the weakly interacting massive particle may interact by the simplest of mechanisms and produce enough of a signature to be observed all while not being swamped by natural background radiation, alpha, beta, gamma rays and neutrons. This is actually quite hard. It turns out that almost everything in the universe contains at least some radionuclides, so everything is radioactive in some manner, so any detector would need to be in the most inert place accessible by humans. The simplest manner of interaction that weakly interacting massive particles should exhibit is known as scattering, the deviating effect on the trajectory of a particle. Early in the 21st century, the largest dark matter detectors were therefore enormous systems comprised of many tons of ultra-pure liquid argon, xenon, and in other cases, single crystals of germanium and silicon. These detectors were buried deep underground in mines and tunnels in order to escape cosmic rays and were built from naturally pure or radiation shielding materials so that if a weakly interacting massive particle did interact in the target material, its signature wouldn't be swamped by background radiation. Once built, the only thing left to do with the detector was to watch it and wait as it quietly detected everything it was sensitive to, hoping to capture that tiny needle in a million haystacks. How long should we keep looking? This question has been asked many times over. The parameter space for this experiment is very large. we be slapdash to not cover it the best we can before moving on. One limit to how far we go is the so-called neutrino floor. This is the point of sensitivity at which low-energy neutrino interactions begin to present a background in the detectors. To get there, scientists have built their detectors out of ultra-high purity materials used extensive shielding techniques and purified their targets of radioactive isotopes to unprecedented levels. You might think giving the kitchen sink a thorough wipe-down would mean it is clean, but for a dark matter experiment, even a fingerprint would create a glow of background events from dead skin cells alone. So what is the matter with dark matter? It's a substance in the universe that clearly exists, but interacts with the rest of the universe in strange ways. We can't see it, We can only see indirect evidence of its existence. But our measurements of the universe predict that it is plentiful. Much more plentiful, in fact, than the plain old matter we know and see in stars, trees, spaceships, and ourselves.
0: Staying Cool in Space How do our ships cool in space? What's the difference between heat and temperature? Our human experience of heat, that is primarily in an atmosphere, can give us a distorted view on just how heat behaves in space. Heat and temperature are very different and require different management, in the near-perfect vacuum of space. In a solid, temperature is a measure of the vibrational energy its constituent molecules and atoms have. In a gas, where atoms and molecules are free to move, temperature is about pressure and volume, but is basically the average velocity of the molecules. Liquids are a transitional crossing state somewhere between that of a solid and gas, but temperature is still essentially a measure of kinetic energy. Heat, on the other hand, is a measure of energy transference between objects. Heat transfer is the experience of temperature with which we are familiar, and it is a different thing to temperature. If you placed a piece of metal and a piece of plastic in a boiling water bath for several minutes and then removed them, they would be at the same temperature. However, when you touched each of them, you would experience that the metal felt hotter than the plastic. Why? This is the interesting dynamic that is heat. Upon touching the metal, it transfers energy to your skin very quickly, causing your skin's temperature to rapidly rise and trigger a pain response. The plastic, on the other hand, does not transfer heat quite as well, so your skin doesn't get that rapid dump of energy. The material property that governs the conversion of energy into an expression of temperature is known as the specific heat capacity of the material. Specific heat for short. It is the number of joules of energy a kilogram of the material will absorb or emit for every degree of temperature change. There are three methods of transferring heat between one object and another. Conduction Direct contact between the surfaces of materials. Convection Temperature-driven bulk movements of liquids and gases in which the cooler gas and liquid will tend to fall, and hot gas and liquids will tend to rise. The result is a transfer of heat between the hot and cold materials. Radiation Production of photon radiation by a material typically in the infrared in everyday objects, although it can extend through the visible spectrum. So what happens in space? A Cobra Mark III carries a miniaturised fusion reactor capable of producing 15 megawatts of power. Regardless of the electrical power used to run all ship systems, all of the power produced and used will in some way end up as heat. This heat can't transfer by conduction or convection because the ship's in a vacuum. Without the means to transfer heat, the ship heats up. How much? Let's use a tonne of steel as an example. The specific heat of steel is 510 joules per kilogram Kelvin. The latent heat of melting is 247,000 joules per kilogram. From 300 Kelvin, roughly room temperature, to a melting point of 1,648 degrees Kelvin, a change in temperature of 1,348 Kelvin, 688 megajoules of energy is required. From a 15 megawatt power source, that takes 46 seconds. Similarly, for melting... It requires 247 megajoules of energy, requiring a little over 16 seconds. That's a tonne of steel melted in about a minute. The unladen mass of an average cobra is roughly 260 tonnes. If you assume that all of that tonnage is steel, the entire space frame will heat up by 30 degrees in roughly 5 minutes. That's not ideal for human comfort. How do we stop that beautiful spacecraft slowly turning into a ball of molten metal? We need to vent the heat into space as efficiently as possible. As mentioned earlier, the vacuum around the ship prohibits the use of convection or conduction, so the only available passive method is radiation, which, unfortunately, is the least efficient. The production and emanation of light by an object at high temperature is known as black body radiation. The flux of black body radiation is related to the fourth power of temperature and means that if you want to radiate a lot of energy, the material you use to do it must have a high surface area, high emissivity, and be very hot without melting. If, for argument's sake, the Cobra has a perfectly emissive surface with an area of 1,500 metres squared that's twice its silhouette area, the whole surface would be held at a temperature of 650 Kelvin or 377 Celsius. However, Our ships are incredibly good at keeping our fragile human body from baking via the use of efficiently designed radiator surfaces, as well as recycling the plasma generated in the fusion core to supplement and preheat the thrusters. This helps remove heat from the ship. The radiators on a vessel are designed to remove heat from the fusion core, with overhead, and are constructed from helium-flushed high-temperature tungsten plates or coils. Tungsten has a very high melting point, around 3,700 degrees Kelvin, so if they're held at a maximum temperature of 3,600 degrees Kelvin, the required surface area of our thermal plates is theoretically 1.6 metres squared. This represents an absolutely perfect system and doesn't take into account the heat efficiency of the fusion system, the thermal core heat pumps and the directionality of the radiators, as heat will want to emanate in all directions. In reality, there are losses in efficiency, as there are in nearly all energy transfers, in pumping the high-pressure helium fluid and in achieving such high temperatures. The flat surface area of the radiators on a Cobra is actually 18 metres squared, so its cooling system has to have an efficiency of 10%, with the power plant running at maximum capacity and all systems operational and functioning. In order to remove that heat from the ship and keep you cool on these occasions, the Cobra will open its radiators and emit a bright yellow glow, the glow being photons, radiating energy away from the craft. When the ship is idling, not using all available power so the power plant is generating less heat, the radiators remain closed. The radiator shields, as well as the rest of the hull, emit heat as infrared radiation. In terms of spaceships, power equals heat. The pips of the power distribution system can be thought of as electrical power that rests in capacitor banks which we drain when we pull the trigger on our weapons or mining lasers. However, when the capacitor runs dry, the message that it displays on the HUD is thermal overload. That's because the capacitor represents the heat buffer the distributor can absorb before it reaches its working limit. Thrusters and shield generators add heat. When standard munitions are fired, they generate mechanical and chemical heat. When energy weapons fire, the process of producing a laser pulse generates large amounts of heat as a consequence of inefficiency, as not all the energy supplied by the power distributor is converted into destructive force. All this heat requires removal to prevent the ship, its systems and its occupants cooking and ultimately melting. So, the removal of heat is of crucial importance for the maintenance of life in space. Heat, and the moderation of a ship's heat output or signature, is also important from a tactical standpoint. In the 20th century, the most commonly used methods of detecting flying objects was to pulse radio waves from a tower and watch for signals bouncing back. As technology progressed, modern combat aircraft employed both low-radio-reflectivity paint as well as a special airframe design to reduce their radio impact and effectively achieve stealth. Such coatings come as standard in the 34th century, and as such radar has fallen out of use. Given the obvious issue as described above, with the emission of vast amounts of energy in infrared and visible spectrums from a ship's passive and active cooling systems, the observation of heat has become the de facto method of tracking and monitoring nearby objects for ship sensors. The scope itself is fed by an array of directional sensors mounted within the skin of the spacecraft, and objects of interest reconstructed via multilateration using the onboard computer. Much like the use of anti reflective coatings for reducing radar signature, a pilot can obtain some measure of stealth by manually controlling the radiator shutters and overriding the cooling systems. Though the thrusters will still vent some heat, the core of the ship will begin to store heat and increase in temperature, causing structural stress and ultimately damage and malfunctions if not controlled. However, the heat that is not being vented is also not giving away the ship's position, so silent running is a good way of quickly making a ship harder to detect. Heat sinks are often used in tandem with silent running, and many pilots equip them as a matter of course. With the command, the ship flushes the heat pump, which drives the radiator, purging the ship's heat to a thermal bank, the heatsink itself. The heat sink, once glowing white hot with the accumulated heat of the ship, is then physically ejected, leaving the ship barely warmer than the surrounding void. To nearby heat sensors, the ejected heat sink will light up like a flare, so it can be useful to distract vessels, space stations or munitions, while your ship escapes unnoticed. Soon after ejecting the heatsink, of course, the normal action of the power plant starts heating the thermal distribution system again, and the ship will regain the lost heat within several seconds, unless the radiators are opened again. Heat finds its way into other aspects of life among the stars too. Some combatiers favour emissive munitions, thermal vent lasers or other exotic weaponry effects. Special characteristics that allow a pilot to impart heat to a target, increase their heat signature, or cool their own vessel. The frigid dust cloud left over from a cracked asteroid also provides excellent cover for ships seeking to remain undiscovered amongst the rings.
2: Passengers Wanted. Have Spaceship. Will Travel.
4: Since the advent of the frameshift drive, the galaxy has become a smaller place. Voyages that used to take months can now be completed in hours. Stardreamer technology, once considered crucial for maintaining one's sanity and sense of time during these voyages, is now relegated to the junk heap. Indeed, for a private individual to travel from one star system to another, or even to distant wonders, is easier than ever. Saud Kruger has emerged to accommodate this burgeoning market, Offering ships from the humble dolphin shuttle to the gargantuan beluga megaliner, both covered elsewhere in this issue. Gone are the coffin-like cryopods of yesteryear. Even economy travellers can expect private quarters and facilities with ready access to food and drink. These luxury cabins are specially crafted to combat the effects of zero-g upon the human body, ensuring that even the most spacic of passengers arrive at their destination in healthy condition. Commander Toxophilite manages the Toxo Tours fleet, which has offices in Colonia and the Bubble. He takes us through his fleet.
12: TFS Toxo Tours 1 is our dolphin, fitted out with all mod cons for executive travelers, with high-grade thrusters and a very low heat profile for those passengers requiring a little discretion on their travels. Then there's our somewhat more utilitarian T7 rescue and mass transit vehicle, TFS ballistic descent, kitted out for refugee aid worker transport and doubles as a station rescue vehicle. Extra thermal resistance for safety and heat sinks aplenty. Take TOXO tours because most of our passengers get there and back alive.
4: These different specialisms neatly encapsulate the breadth of passenger mission available to independent pilots. Someone with a ship and some time can rescue stricken people smuggle criminals or pilot science expeditions. Interstellar tourism is now big business. Commander Azrael Alechen Chen is enthusiastic about the life of an interstellar
13: tour guide. I take sightseeing passengers. I enjoy going to different places I wouldn't have thought to stop at. Some may be boring, but others are interesting. I don't mind if they're economy first or business class. We all just want to get out there. So why not take along for the ride? The tourist beacons that have littered the galaxy in recent years are favourite
4: destinations for independent pilots and sightseers. They provide interesting information
13: on the history of a place and tend to be deliberately left at scenic locations. Just this morning, I went to Falk and Beginnings tourist spot and learned something new about the ships I love. Good excuse to get out there and explore the galaxy. Commander Tic-Tac concurs.
7: I I like running short-range missions, mostly VIP sightseeing. You often get to see amazing sights, like geysers and get quite some money, too. I usually use a dolphin or orca, depending on my mood.
4: Trips further afield can be risky. Commander Wrangler Actual told us,
7: I
12: came to know one of the members of my small squadron, the Freelancers, because he sent me an SOS one night while I was out in the black. Turns out he was 200 light years out in an orca being pursued by Thargoids.
4: The conversation turns to passenger runs, and he smiles.
12: I do them occasionally. Once I transported a group of prisoners in one cabin and the CEO of a company in the adjoining cabin. That was a memorable voyage.
4: (laughs) There are more urgent situations in which a passenger cabin might be required, too. Commander Zdenek Jurg explains a little about the business rescuing refugees of Thargoid attacks on stations.
13: By far, the most passenger missions for me has been rescue missions from burning stations in my cold-running Rataconda. It doesn't even need heat sinks in those conditions. Someone's got to help them, wouldn't you say?
4: Stenek-Jurg's comment strikes a familiar chord. Behind the gruff exterior of some of these flyers lies a softer centre. Sure they're motivated to make a living and a profit, but anyone who takes a rescue mission is risking their life to save others. That theme is common, and it creates a bond. Some, however, are more mercantile. Hat and sandals guy told us,
7: Mostly I do rescue missions in a type Six because it fails quickly and I can turn over to 52 survivors in a couple of minutes. No worries about pad sizing or excessive heat, as a single heat sink will keep me below 10% on exit. It's also an easy 700k per trip.
4: Then there are the scientists with frameshift technology has come a boom in observational science, with the cost of visiting distant phenomena plummeting over the last few years. Commander Samurai 83 ITA explains.
12: Here at Expander's Corp., we have a group of willing scientists. Our University of Astrophysics and Cosmology, under the supervision of Director Thomas Angela, is always working to get answers from the universe and to collect important data. With my phantom, I often welcome scientists and explorers to take them to areas of scientific interest, thus taking advantage of expanding both my personal and university studies. They are not very long journeys. I don't go beyond the 5,000 to 6,000 light years, but for the rewards that are obtained, they are good journeys.
4: There is another type of passenger willing to pay for passage, one for whom discretion is essential. Jackson Sonells is older dark eyes and a face that have formed deep lines. His thick black hair is tied back in a ponytail and his flight suit is barely visible beneath a heavy leather coat and ragged black trousers. This pilot likes his and brandy straight, his conversation more so. He begins speaking without preamble, his voice sunned and grit.
7: Truth is, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who are open about having a past and those who ain't come clean yet In this line of work a credit is a credit you follow I fly a crate, phantom model, engineered and if she runs a little too cold for some badge to run a scan well... let's just say that some clients value their privacy more than others and are willing to pay top cred to keep it It takes a real spacer to do it but if you can keep your mouth shut And your ship cool? Well...
4: His wrist computer beeps. Jackson rises, finishing his drink.
7: You'll never want for work or interesting stories. Now, if you'll excuse me...
4: He stalks off. He's left me to pick up the tab.
2: Stations You Haven't Visited. Rabardin Rock.
13: It is difficult to imagine a more appropriate or cliched home base for a gang of outlaws, a hard scrabble asteroid base orbiting a primordial lava world, itself on the very edge of humanity's frontier. Bare, blasted out stone complementing prefab metal, people as tough as the rock surrounding them, ships with skulls and garish paint, these are the hallmarks of Rabardin Rock, which the locals have come to call simply The Rock. Yet to take the roguish types who frequent the forlorn station for common criminals or hapless drifters would be a mistake. The face value story of Rabarding Rock is unremarkable. A suitable asteroid was located in high orbit above a metal-rich lava world and was swiftly transformed into a Spartan facility that could accommodate nearly any ship and a decent civilian population. It was out of the way, and certainly beyond the reach of the Bulbway's superpowers. Like so many independent settlements, there exists no record of its construction, of the firms and individuals who oversaw its development, or of how such an unforgiving locale came to be frequented. It is impossible to know, at least for this technology inept correspondent, how old the station is. Rabardin Rock, for all intents and purposes, sprang into existence from nothing. One is greeted with a sort of outlaw hospitality upon arriving there is little of the highly regulated structure with which docking tubes are regulated in the bubble if a visitor is known he or she has the run of the base if they are not they are subject to direct questioning and body scans their ship too is inspected or not depending on one's reputations with the locals it is a system with all the informality of frontier life yet remarkably effective Uniforms are non-existent on Rabardin Rock, yet in a larger sense one sees a certain roguish commonality of dress. Clothing is simple, often well-worn and dark, leather is preferred among the piloting community and those with whom they deal, and thick fabrics are favoured by most everyone else. It is cold on the rock, its corridors and commons are habitable, but hardly accommodating, the scent of machine oil never far from one's nose. Living quarters, such as they are, tend to be sparse affairs, the best of them akin to a lake-on-stateroom, and the worst possessed of bare piping and rock walls. A private commode is considered a luxury. The story of Rabarding Rock cannot be told without the story of the nameless, for the fate of one has been the fate of the other. For all the interviews this correspondence obtained, none would speak openly of the ruling faction. They are a near total mystery emerging, as Robard in Rock did, seemingly from nowhere, yet certainly well-funded and equipped. Theirs is a story worth telling, Villainized though they are. The Nameless arrived in Colonia during October of 3303, swiftly entrenching themselves in multiple systems. There exists no reliable record of where they came from or how they acquired their ships or assets, but the peace for which Colonia was known was forever dashed. The remote region's first war ensued, both the Nameless and the Colonia Council appealing to freelance commanders for their aid. Yet the intrusive manner in which the Nameless entered Colonia turned popular opinion against them, and the conflict was lost. For several months, the Nameless were nowhere to be found, controlling not a single asset in Calcosa. Stability settled over Robardin Rock, the station being a source of military hardware to ward against future threats to the police of Colonia region. Peace seemed the order of the day. That peace came to a crashing halt on the 1st of April 3304. From the black reaches of the void came ships, not the common traders and explorers of the Colonia community, but highly engineered predators, the likes of which Colonia had rarely seen. Ferdelances and at least one black market corvette wrought havoc upon Carcosa's trade lanes. Local authorities were overwhelmed. The nameless had returned. Yet this new conflict was unlike the first. It was smaller and less widely publicised. The mainline forces of Explorer's Nation, the station's controlling faction, were away on the distant world's expedition, powerless to counterattack from so far away. Robardin Rock was itself a war zone, bitterly contested both within and without. Explorer's Nation were forced to concede defeat within days. Robardin Rock reverted into the hands of the Nameless, and with it, control of Carcosa itself. The fall of Rabardin Rock sent shockwaves through the remote colonial region. The violence that engulfed the space around robardin Rock has ceased and the Nameless appear to have taken no further acts of aggression against Explorers Nation. Trade and commerce have resumed at the asteroid base with the surprise availability of Alliance and Federation vessels from the local ship market. No formal peace agreement has been signed, however, and all who reside within the inhospitable base expect renewed hostilities at some point. Robardin Rock is a place like the primordial world it orbits, tempestuous and unstable. Things are different in this backwater den of outlaws. Life is stripped down to its essence where one has little choice except to rise or perish. Frivolity is cast aside, consumed by the crucible of necessity. One has to respect the hardy souls who call Robardin Rock their home, for they are the stock that led humanity among the stars
2: themselves. How independent pilots shape galactic politics.
14: To those who have been following the political landscape over the last few decades, it comes to no surprise that the Pilots Federation is frequently mentioned as one of the most influential institutions in our galaxy. According to data gathered by EDDB and other Commander Community Platforms, the bubble is comprised of over 20,000 systems. Out of these, more than 6,000 are controlled by factions which are officially recognized as Pilots' Minor Factions. This designation refers to factions founded by Pilots' Federation members or retrospectively acknowledged to be linked to a squadron of the Pilots' Federation members. The founding, or insertion, process has only been established over the last four years. It allows any group of commanders that numbers at least ten to found its own minor faction within a system of their choice, with the support and approval of the Pilots' Federation. Despite the recency of this, there's already nearly 2,000 pilots' minor factions that together control over a quarter of human space. It has become the new reality that politics is no longer decided by the superpowers, or even by their militaries. It's the actions of pilots' federation commanders that matter now. The ability to influence systems and factions to fit one's desires has always been the preserve of the wealthy and influential elite. In our modern age, it seems that these independent pilots have become the new elite, with their vast wealth and collective influence. There's about 75,000 factions in the bubble. Only 2.5% are pilots' minor factions. The sheer number of systems they have taken control of in only four years is a striking demonstration of the overwhelming power that independent pilots hold today. This is why the galaxy's most powerful individuals seek their support, why factions rely on their contributions through community goals, and why humanity's overall defense against the Thargoids is so dependent on them. Why is it that the Pilots' Federation commanders have begun shaking up the galactic landscape so much, and so recently? Many of us have already forgotten about the major leaps that were made in hyperdrive technology over the last few years, about the efforts spearheaded by the Sirius Corporation, and later the engineers. These events have given those the means to take advantage of them, tremendous power to make money and go where the opportunities are. With these abilities, many pilots have decided to leave their own mark on our galaxy. This process began as early as 3300, when many would have described supporting a faction as a nightmare. While pilots are still not in direct control, merely steering and influencing changes is a tricky endeavor. Clever technologies developed by commanders allow for better fine control than back in those days. These early changes did not prevent some groups from attaining massive influence, however, Two large groups operating in the days before the pilots' minor factions were implemented were Communism Interstellar, a coalition of communist sympathizers who made it their mission to create a major area of space under communist control, and the Alliance Elite Diplomatic Corps, a squadron of alliance supporters which sought to expand the alliance of independent systems and establish its equal footing with the Federation and Empire. Almost five years later, both groups are still around and their achievements are clearly visible. Communism Interstellar is now a major galactic power, rivaling many of the eleven official powers in size. They have created a big sphere of communist governments around the Maynite system. Encompassing several minor factions, the group controls well over 500 star systems. That's far bigger than the Alliance of Independent Systems was in 3300. Meanwhile, though, the Alliance has nearly quadrupled in size. In 3305, at the time of writing, it is now approaching 1,000 systems and can be projected to pass this number soon. This massive expansion was achieved due to the input of many prominent groups, but the Alliance Elite Diplomatic Corps is commonly credited for having spearheaded it. The transformation of our galaxy has been going for a while, yet the pace of galactic politics and the rules which dictate its nature keep changing. Knowledge on how to steer influence changes efficiently, and is now more easily accessible than it was a couple years ago, when groups still broadly settled on policy through trial and error, though experimentation is still frequent. At the same time, the development of popular tools like Inara and EDDB has made it easier to track and evaluate data across systems. Where Pilots' Federation tools are lacking, independent developers within the Pilots' community have filled the gaps where they can. The biggest recent change, however, is probably that the insertion of Pilots' minor factions has become more popular and increasingly frequent. While for most of the last few years, the process remained sporadic, slow, and demanding, this changed in 3304 with the introduction of a Pilots' Federation initiative that allowed many more factions to be inserted, plus more quickly. As a result, Far fewer groups were deterred by the insertion process and many more pilots' minor factions began actively expanding soon after their foundation. In early 3304, the majority of all inserted pilots' minor factions had never even taken control of their home system. Today, that is no longer the case. The bubble is, slowly but steadily, becoming crowded. This trend leads to more conflicts between commander groups. While clashes over systems and stations are not new, both in terms of direct confrontations as well as proxy wars via factions, they now often evolve out of information shortfalls. In order to properly identify a PMF, a pilot is required to rely on third-party tools. Adding to the complexity, some of the factions are adopted by pilots who did not found them, meaning that they are not classed as pilots' minor factions. This is the case for old groups like Communism Interstellar and the Alliance Elite Diplomatic Corps, in particular, but also for the power play communities that work on fortifying their areas of control. Since the introduction of Pilots Minor Factions, the Pilots' Federation policy has been to recognize only one faction per squadron. They ruled that new insertions could take place in almost any system without PMF present. Groups which had supported multiple factions before this change would now have to defend their claims over systems, as newly inserted pilots' minor factions would not often recognize them. All of this has led to a dilemma. New pilots' minor factions are inserted right in the middle of a territory that is already claimed or worked on by an established group. The new faction finds itself in a difficult situation, since any sort of expansion could lead to conflict. Pilots who are new to politics are often unaware that non-PMF factions can sometimes be intensively supported. The fact that the Pilots' Federation does not provide any information on the support it receives by pilots makes this worse. After all, anyone can claim that they are supporting a minor faction, but only if the pilots' minor faction can have a legitimate claim to the system. The old guard will have to relinquish its claims on hundreds of systems, claims brought through years' worth of effort. Despite its newfound ability to insert factions, the Pilots' Federation still doesn't seem to differentiate between Pilots' Minor Factions and other Minor Factions. All Minor Factions are treated by its networks in the same way. No information about levels of commander support is made available other than what squadrons display on their squadron page. New squadrons are allowed to pledge allegiance to any Minor Faction, regardless of whether it is a PMF or not. Given the increasing number of Pilots' Federation members trying to shape galactic politics, we are bound to see more future conflicts between Pilots in a political map that is rapidly changing. Our new age will give rise to new powers and philosophies, and cause old ones to decline. Galactic records are constantly overtaken. In issue 6 of this magazine, we featured the Perez Ring Brewery. As a booming alliance company, they had managed to become the galaxy's most populous faction in 3303. In 3304, their record was overtaken by the Sons of Seven Lords Interstellar PLC, a corporate meritocracy based around the Tawilo system, who are known as the initiators behind the Great Galactic Census. It's likely we will see more huge changes within the next few years. Perhaps the Pilots' Federation will change its policies again, or even provide commanders with new tools to reshape the galactic map. Factions which embrace independent pilot support will likely continue to be the dominant forces in our galaxy. These will include factions that hand out permits like the Alioth Independence or Sirius Corporation, factions that enjoy pilot support because of their philosophy, or factions founded by a pilot group itself. In the long run, The superpowers may lose relevance and be outmatched. More than half of newly inserted pilots' minor factions are independent, that is, aligned to no superpower. Together they control about three-quarters of PMF-controlled systems and assets. It seems that the superpowers lack the broad appeal of independent factions, which can muster new recruits from all affiliations. If this trend continues, it augurs poorly for the Federation and the Empire. Unless the superpowers start to offer independent pilots something more for their support that goes beyond pure ideology, pilots will most likely choose to go their own way instead, and leave their own individual mark. As statistics show, this is affecting the Federation the most. The percentage of civilized systems it controls is falling fast, from around 33% down to just 26% in only the last five years. It has lost over 1,500 systems and yet it doesn't appear to make any moves to counter this existential threat. The Empire is losing systems at a smaller rate and hasn't responded either. The Alliance is so far the only superpower which has remained unhurt by these developments. In fact, it has profited from them, maybe due to its position as the underdog of the superpowers, maybe because of its broad tolerance in regards to manufacturing philosophies and government types, It has been able to rally far more support in relation to its size. Yet the Alliance might be facing the biggest existential crisis of the three in the long run, because ultimately its whole existence is justified by the strength of the other powers. When they decline, why should independents see a need for an alliance? Whether these predictions become reality or not is mostly up to us independent pilots and how we continue to evolve as a community. We should be the last ones to speak of a stagnating galaxy, because the power to change things lies in our hands, more than anyone else's. So far we have made good use of it, but we should watch where we step if we don't want to tread on each other's toes. Rare
2: Commodities Spotlight Gyewin Dance Dust
15: The interstellar and seemingly eternal rock band Jagged Banner have performed some incredible concerts over the decades. These events have become rarer and rarer as the aging music maestros gradually lose their battle with the grim reaper. Their music is appreciated by people from all walks of life, whether you get a chance to watch Senora Mia Felicita perform hover ballet to their strident tones, or your experience of them is in a concrete nightclub several floors down beneath the surface of an outpost on an airless world, that music means something. Even if you're wearing mag boots when you hear it, it makes you want to move. Gaywin Dance Desk conveys a similar experience. Some users claim it transforms any music they listen to, elevating their perception of it until the rhythm just hits. There are a variety of scientific claims and counterclaims as to why, but no one can dispute the result. You take dance dust and the music enters your soul, has a party down there, and refuses to leave. The Gawin system is remote and drab. There are two orbital outposts and one planetary landing, with only the gas giant Gawin C9, home to any kind of native population. In this case, mysterious sea creatures that generate plenty of tall tales amongst those who've been stuck in the system for too long. They are subject to a set of environment preservation orders, meaning that anyone who actually tries to take a look at them for themselves is breaking several laws and will find a bounty on their heads. How dance dust is manufactured in such a system is anyone's guess. The commodity remains legal under the licensed trade policy of the Pilots' Federation, but it must contain some kind of refined substance that is peculiar to the Gawin system because attempts to retro-engineer or synthesize a substitute elsewhere always fail. That suggests the Gawin locals are in possession of some kind of special formula or secret ingredient. Maybe it comes from one of those kraken talked about in the bars on Abruchev Legacy. Gawain dance dust can be taken in a drink, a tablet, or just swallowed in dust form, The dust is gritty and has no real taste, other than a slight metallic edge after swallowing. About 90 seconds later, the music starts, whether there's actual music being played or not. The effect lasts for hours and hours. Trying to focus on anything apart from the rhythm in your veins is all but impossible, even in zero gravity, which can lead to some difficult moments as users thrash around in time to some private beat that throbs between their ears it does make people dance. Gawin Dance Dust does not improve coordination, or indeed, dancing. Warning, do not use Wilt holding sharp objects or standing near cliff edges.
0: Thank you for listening to Issue 23 of Sagittarius Eye Magazine. This issue featured articles written by Coriander Salamander, Adernis, Andrew Gaspar, Lord Tyvin, Mac Winston, Iris Madelong, M. Lehman, Ulon, Alan Stroud and Suverine. This audio edition featured the voices of Adernis, Beetlejuice, Catisfaction, Burr, Daryl Gnar, Mayor Faye, MacGyver, Perky Percy, Poets, Sparrow, Reney, Rosetta Stone, Spidey W2, Wotherspoon and Wrangler Actual and was edited by Adernis, Edelweiss, Souverine, Dr. Toxic and Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at Sagittarius-I.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous, with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I.